So last week as Advent began, our church read about the identity of Jesus through his family tree. We read the genealogy from Matthew 1, 1 through 17. And Matthew, the writer of that gospel, tells us that Jesus is both the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's the promised one who's come to deliver. He's the one who was, will bring blessing to the nations. And that family tree weaves through the highs and more often the lows of Israel's history. We see in those generations that Matthew lists, we see men and women, Jews and Gentiles, kings and princes, adulterers and prostitutes. By the end, when we get to the final part of the genealogy, it's just a bunch of people we've never heard of before. It's just this obscure list of names because the house of David has fallen. Now, after the family tree explains Jesus' identity as the promised one, we get to verses 18 through 25, and we start to hear about the arrival of Jesus, as Matthew tells tells us of his birth. I was thinking this week, most people love birth stories. If you have children, maybe you tell them on their birthday about the circumstances that surrounded their birth. Especially maybe if, they were, if there was something that was dramatic or unusual about that. Maybe you remember something about the weather that day or the drive to the hospital or you remember something the doctor said or something funny about the nurses. And we like to tell and recount those stories because they kind of stick in our mind. I remember very vividly when my wife started to go into labor with our youngest son, Joel. Joel's birth story will always be memorable in our family. It was August 15th. I'm sorry, August 5th. 2000, it was August 5th, sorry. It was August, <laughs> it was August 5th, 2017. I was in line with our other three kids buying fried dough at the Eden Corn Festival when Laurel told me with some urgency We've got to get out of here. <laughs> and we raced, up, we raced up the 90 to Millard Fillmore. We were, it was a, we were in a hurry. We love to hear birth stories. And that is what we have to look at tonight. Or this morning, I guess. It, it feels like night. But it's so dark in here. But when we, what we have this morning is a birth account. Matthew tells us in the genealogy who Jesus is, now we get to hear how he was born. And when we hear the names of Jesus, we hear not only how he was born, but who he is and why he came to earth. Matthew begins his account like this, explaining how the birth of Christ happened. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. One of the things that's so fascinating about Matthew's gospel is that he tells us the story of Jesus' birth, but he does it through the lens of Joseph's experience. If we read Luke's gospel, Luke has his own birth account, and the emphasis is much more on Mary and her perspective. But Matthew makes Joseph a central figure in chapters 1 and 2. And this morning, Matthew helps us experience the announcement of Jesus' birth through the eyes of Joseph. Now, let me ask you, 
have any of you ever had a broken engagement? Or do you know of one that you think of? An engagement is supposed to, of course, go forward to marriage. That's the expectation after the proposal. But what happens? What's the fallout when it doesn't happen? When I was younger, I had a friend who got engaged to a girl in Scandinavia somewhere. They were stateside together. They exchanged rings. They had a big American party with gifts to celebrate the engagement. Then she went back to Finland to get ready for the wedding. About four weeks before the wedding, my friend got cold feet and called her up from New York. And he said, I don't know if this is going to work out. It was an ugly scene, as you can imagine. Betrothal is more intense even than engagement. Betrothal is more than giving your word. It's a legal pledge. If you were betrothed, that meant you were legally committed to the marriage. It means the families of the men and the women had gotten together and made a contract. In a betrothal period, one thing that absolutely did not happen was sex. Yes, they're so committed together that even in the text in verse 19, Joseph is referred to as Mary's husband, even though they are not married. But there was no sexual relationship in the betrothal period before the marriage was consummated. It's hard for us to comprehend in our culture where people move in together before, during, unrelated to the engagement. They don't know what the big deal is. Joseph knows for certain that sex before marriage would be sinful. And what would be even worse for Joseph would be to find out that his betrothed was with another man before they got married. Now, of course, the text tells us Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is a miraculous conception that we're talking about. But again, Matthew is relating the birth account from Joseph's vantage point. The only part that Joseph knows about this is the with child part. That's all he knows. It's very important for us to grasp because the text is kind of taking us into Joseph's dilemma. He takes us right into this quandary that Joseph has. He has pledged himself to this woman only to find out that she is pregnant. And isn't it interesting that the situation does not immediately get clarified? It doesn't get straightened out right away. And isn't that often the case for us in our own bewildering circumstances that God allows us to struggle for a time? Put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a moment. Because what would you do? What would you do in this situation? The passage continues, verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So this passage is establishing for us that Joseph is a good man. We see here a combination of his justice and his graciousness. Joseph, being righteous, intended to divorce her. So think about this for a second. Joseph is tossing and turning at night. He's brokenhearted. He's upset. He's wondering how he should proceed. He cares about the law of God. He is a just man. He wants to do what's right. 
What if he went, what if he went and he looked for some advice in our day? Think about that for a second. What if Joseph found a therapist? What if he sent an email to like loveletters.com? He tried to find some sort of, he tried to find some sort of advice columnist. Or what if he sat down with one of his buddies for a drink? What sort of advice would he get? If Joseph found himself a therapist in 2022, she might say something like, it's not unusual. It's not unusual for a young woman to want to explore new things, Joseph. She might say, this is normal. You don't really need to feel so bad about it. You and Mary could still have a very meaningful relationship. Or the columnist might say, Joseph, well, I can't tell you what's right or wrong for you. But why don't you think about the future that you envision for yourself? What do you want? What's best for you? Or if he talked to his friend after work, he might pull up a stool and say, man, how much does an abortion cost? Talk to Mary and get some money together and put this thing behind you. But what if Joseph went, what if Joseph went in a more religious direction? What if he went to church looking for answers? Remember, the text is commending Joseph for being just and righteous. When he thinks about his options, he could overlook what's happened. He could publicly shame his wife. The text tells us that, that his impulse for justice was good. And honestly, I think if Joseph went to most places or most small groups, he might hear something like, well, you love this girl, don't you? Maybe you shouldn't be so judgmental. We've all sinned. We've all made mistakes. About 500 years ago, the reformer, John Calvin, wrote about Joseph's dilemma, and he said this. I think we have this quote on the screen. He said, Joseph, therefore, moved by an ardent love of justice, condemned the crime of which he supposed his wife to have been guilty, while the gentleness of his disposition prevented him from going to the utmost rigor of law. It was a moderate and calmer method to depart privately and remove to a distant place. Hence we infer that he was not of so soft and motherly a disposition as to screen and promote uncleanness under the pretense of merciful dealing. He only made some abatement from stern justice so as not to expose his wife to evil report. And don't, don't get me or Calvin wrong here. It's a beautiful thing to be soft and motherly. But not when we're talking about a man standing up for what is right. Joseph is both tough and tender. And we see those qualities later on in the flight to Egypt in Matthew 2. He's also patient. So even though he sees what things look like, he does not act hastily. And fortunately for Joseph and for all of us, God intervenes in this moment of distress. Verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So into this quandary, an angel breaks in. 
When Matthew says, behold, it's a signal to pay attention. Something earth-shaking is happening. This is not like a hallmark creature that sits on the cloud. This is a powerful messenger of God. We see angelic appearances all throughout the birth narrative. Not because they're normal, but because this is emphasizing the massive importance of what's taking place. The angel addresses Joseph as son of David, which is, of course, linking back to the genealogy in the preceding verses. The Davidic line that's fallen into decay is now, now we get to see God fulfilling his promises to raise up a king and reestablish the throne of David. The baby that Mary is carrying will come from the line of David. He won't be the flesh of David, but the angel explains that the baby has been miraculously conceived and the responsibility will fall to Joseph to be the surrogate, so to speak, to adopt the baby into the Davidic line. The baby will be born of a virgin. We don't understand. It's a miracle. It's a mystery. God breaking into human history. The point is not Mary's specialness. It's that the Savior is coming to us. The Apostles' Creed says it like this. Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. And the angel says, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's read that angelic announcement one more time. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is the entirety of the recorded angelic announcement. I counted 46 words that the angel spoke. And in that angelic appearance, Joseph learned he was to take Mary as his wife. The baby was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. The baby's name was to be Jesus, which means God saves. And the baby had a mission, a divine mission, to save God's people from their sins. So I'm a preacher. I like to study preaching. Preachers can always, almost always learn to improve our brevity our, and just get to the point. But this angel is the model. It's a 46-word sermon. Let me ask you this. Has anyone ever dropped more bombshells in fewer words than this angel? Historians like to think that Abraham Lincoln did an amazing job with the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln's speech lasted about two minutes, and it's remembered 160 years later. That was good. But the angel rocked the world four times in a paragraph. It's a 46-word sermon. It's a proclamation from God. And when Joseph woke up, this is like the rare moment when the sermon listener thinks, I wish he went on longer. Right? I wish he went on longer because how many questions would Joseph still have? He didn't have the detail. He didn't have the instruction. He didn't have the background that he would have wanted. How many questions would he still have left? And while Joseph's head is still spinning, Matthew backs up for a second. And he tells us, his readers, that this is fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, of course, that's more than Joseph knows. 
But with that amazing phrase, God with us, now we start to learn why Jesus came to earth. Jesus means God saves. Christ means that he was anointed, set set apart for a special task. He came to save his people from their sins. Jesus has come to save his people from their sin. To save us from our sin. Of all the things that we needed, this is the top of the list. This is our greatest need, to be saved from our sin. That name Jesus refers to what he does, and that name Emmanuel refers to his nature. He saves his people from their sin. He takes away the guilt of sin through his shed blood, atoning for us on the cross. He saves his people from the dominion and power of sin by giving us the Holy Spirit. He saves us from the presence of sin by giving us the hope of the new creation to come. And he saves us from the consequences of sin when he rises from the dead and makes all things new. If we look back at Jesus' genealogy, it runs from Joseph, from Abraham all the way up to Joseph. And there are some good men in that family tree, but not good enough. No one was good enough. Nobody was close to being able to reverse the curse of sin from Adam. And we see from all their failures, there's no, there can be no self-salvation. There's no other alternative. God had to come. God entered into our human experience in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Savior. He's God with us. He's entered into human history in the most humble way possible, coming as a baby boy. It's the ultimate power of the Savior, complete sympathy as Emmanuel. God with us. Now, in one sense, God is always with us, right? God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. He knows all things. He's everywhere. But now in his incarnation... God is with with us in a new way, breaking into human history, coming in power, coming for our rescue. And we we love to celebrate the coming of Emmanuel at Christmas. We sing about it. But the witness, the witness of God is not just for Christmas. It's a theme that continues all throughout Matthew's gospel. It goes beyond the birth story. Sometimes, you know, when sometimes you watch a movie and maybe maybe if your ears turn tuned to it, you hear like a repeated theme or a melody or a fragment of music at key points throughout the film. And it's a clue. Something important is happening. That is how it is in Matthew with this idea that God is with us. It's a little piece of music or repeated melody that comes up again and again. In Matthew's gospel, the idea that God is with us goes beyond Christmas. It gives us both comfort and power as his people today. Because we see God with us again in Matthew 18, 20, which says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Or there I am with them. Often we think about that verse in the framework of like a church prayer meeting or our fellowship together. 
But if you read Matthew 18 in the broader context, it's a conflict. It's addressing conflict. What to do when one person sins against another. If you're a Christian, you've been through conflict, or maybe even you're in the midst of it. Isn't this good for us to consider? Sometimes we try to mend relationships. We try to use wisdom. People get upset with us. Sometimes people leave our churches. We don't, it's hard. We don't understand it. But as we seek after unity, he's with us. God is with us even in conflict and in distress. He's with his people. And I don't mean simply one church. Think about this. For 2,000 years, the church has been this very unlikely and resilient institution, attacked by the world, weakened by its own sin, weakened by scandals, corrupt leaders. There have been theological battles, divisions, relational strife, persecution, opposition. But the church is not fragile, doesn't go away, not because of our own strength, but the reality God is with us. God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ coming as Emmanuel, breaking into human history, coming to rescue us. God's with us in conflict and distress. And God is with us in our mission of going and making disciples. Look at the end of Matthew. When the resurrected Jesus Christ stands before his followers and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is with his people, with us in our mission to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is risen from the dead. He has authority over all things. He empowers us by his spirit to make disciples. He's with us to empower us in an otherwise impossible task. And as we finish, let's just go back to Joseph one more time. Think with me one more time about all the terror, uncertainty, and anxiety of this moment for Joseph. It's into that moment that Jesus was promised and called Emmanuel, God with us. And back to Matthew's narrative, Joseph wakes up. There's so much more he doesn't understand. He's wishing he got more than 46 words. He's wondering, what about this? What about that? The suspicion surrounding this birth is going to follow him the rest of his life. He doesn't even know yet about the murderous threats of Herod that we read about in Matthew 2. He doesn't know about the hurried flight to Egypt. He doesn't know about the earthly life that his son will lead. He doesn't know how is he going to explain this to his family and friends. He just has these simple instructions. Take Mary and call the baby's name Jesus. That's it. Obey. But he has a promise. God is with him. And that's the life of faith, walking in obedience to the God who is with us. He's with us to share, to sympathize, to identify with our weakness, 
And he's with us to save. He's with us for our power and our blessing. That's the birth story. God saves and God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these words that you've given us. We thank you for the incredible promise that we have that you are with us in the person of Jesus Christ. We have so much to celebrate. Thank you that you are with us in conflict and uncertainty and anxiety, with us to empower us as we call others to follow you. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have this morning. I pray that none of us would leave without that. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me and we will respond to God in song.